It's obvious that at Christmas we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Everybody knows that from the most religious to the least religious. Even those of other religions know that what Christmas is, is the celebration of the coming of Jesus into this world. But here's an answer, here's a question, pardon me, that not everyone knows the answer to. Why did Jesus come? The Bible gives us a simple answer to that question in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus appear? He appeared to put away sins. That's the central point of the statement we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. Listen to it. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The central point in that verse is that Jesus appeared to put away sin. Everything else in that verse just informs and augments that one central point, just fills it out, just gives us more details about when and how, the manner in which Jesus put away sin. But the central point of that verse is that Jesus has appeared to put away sin. Put away means simply to take away or to carry away. In this context, that's what it means. And if we're honest, don't we all, don't we all know that we need our sin to be put away? Taken and carried away from us? We need our sins put away John Gill a theologian from ages gone puts it like this we need both the filth and the guilt of our sins put away both the filth and the guilt that's a good summary of our need as our sins cause us to be both filthy and and guilty. We need the filth of our sins put away. We have all of us, the scripture says, all of us, like sheep gone astray. All of us have disobeyed God. All of us have failed to do the things that we should do. And God summarizes the two foremost duties that we have like this love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself who can say that they've done that the way that they are 
Who can say that they have loved God with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength, all their mind? Who can say that they've loved their neighbor as themselves the way that they ought? We've done the things that we ought, or pardon me, we've not done the things that we ought to have done. And also, we have done the things that we ought not to have done. We have had other gods before God. We've made images, if only mentally, of what we think God is like and worship those images instead of worshiping the true God. We've dishonored His name. We haven't treated Him with the reverence that He's due. We've broken His Sabbath. We've failed to offer Him the worship that we ought to on a regular basis as He has commanded us in His Word. We've dishonored our mothers and our fathers. We have hated people in our hearts. We have lusted. We've stolen. We have borne false witness. We've lied. We've coveted. What I just quoted to you is a summary of the Ten Commandments. So we see that we've, we've left undone the things that we ought to have done. And we've done the things that we ought not to have. So we're filthy. All of us. Myself included. Even the biblical authors. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul. Or thinking back about the Old Testament writers. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've all become filthy. Scripture says that all of our righteousness, right, not, not all of our sins, not like the worst things that we've done, if we pile up all the worst things we've done, but all of our righteousness, if we pile up all the best things we've done, Scripture says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. If we were to try to approach God on the basis of our own merit, it'd be like walking into a freshly mopped house after wandering around barefoot in the gully on a rainy day. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We would appear, appear before God filthy. Even bringing our best before Him. We need that filthiness to be taken away. We actually need to be made clean. But we also need the guilt of our sins put away. Because the problem is not only that we are filthy, but also that we are guilty. If you or I murdered someone and let's say that it wasn't by lethal injection but it was a messier murder such that we have blood on our hands when all was said and done we can wash the blood off our hands so that we would no longer be filthy but we would still be guilty 
Not only are we filthy because of our sins, but we are guilty for our sins. Even if there was some way that we could clean ourselves up, which there's not, but even if there were some way that we could clean ourselves up, we would still be guilty for our sins. We would, we've all done what we should not do and failed to do what we should have. And God sees us not only as filthy because of that, but guilty because of that. So we need the guilt of our sins put away. We need both the filth and the guilt of our sins put away. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus has appeared to put away sin. This verse tells us that Jesus came to put away our sins once and for all. Once for all. Jesus put the filth and guilt of our sins away from us once for all. When he suffered on the cross at Calvary. He dealt there with both the filth and the guilt of our sins. I'm going to explain how what he did on the cross was both like and unlike Old Testament animal sacrifices. What Jesus did on the cross was like Old Testament animal sacrifices in this sense. In the Old Testament, the priest would put his hand on the head of an animal that was about to be sacrificed and would confess the sins of the people. And it's as if that filth and the guilt of the people were transferred to that animal. Now, on the Day of Atonement, described for us in Leviticus 16, which is the highest ceremony concerning the dealing with of sin and concerning animal sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. One of the goats was sent away from the people. The symbolism of that is that as the sins were transferred to the goat, the goat carried them away from the people. And so the people were no longer filthy. The second goat was killed. That symbolized the wrath of God being poured out upon it in the place of the people. The consequent being in what it symbolized that the people were no longer guilty. These two goats symbolize for us what Jesus did on the cross. It's as if we put our hands on Jesus' head and confessed our sins 
And then he went away from the city. Outside the city, Hebrews 13 tells us. Outside the camp. Hearkening back to that language of the scapegoat. Who bore the sins of the people away from the camp. Outside the camp. Jesus took our sins outside the city. Outside the camp. Away from us. Wearing our filth. To make us clean. And on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. The punishment that we deserved for our sins. Once punishment has been paid out, the person to whom it's due is no longer liable to any more judgment. Once you serve your sentence and you get out, they can't put you back in jail for the same thing. No longer guilty. You couldn't be condemned in a court of law, even if they should haul you there and make you stand before judge and jury. You can't be condemned. You can't have a guilty sentence pronounced upon you. Jesus bore the punishment that sinners deserved. So not only did he take our sins away from us, putting away our filth, but Jesus bore our punishment, putting away our guilt. In this way, what Jesus did on the cross was like those animal sacrifices. But what Jesus did on the cross was unlike Old Testament animal sacrifices in this sense. This verse that is before us says that Jesus has appeared once for all to put away sin. The logic that the author of Hebrews is operating with as he writes once for all is this. Those animal sacrifices obviously didn't deal with Effectively with the filth and the guilt of sin. It's not as if God's people were actually rendered clean and not guilty. Otherwise the sacrifices would have ceased to have been offered. They were ineffective and by the very fact that they had to be offered over and over again, obviously they hadn't been efficacious. They hadn't done that which they symbolized. And so, by their very, the very nature of them, by the very fact that they had to be repeated over and over again, we could see that they weren't actually doing that which they symbolized. And so, there was an anticipation built in of an eventual atoning sacrifice that would actually accomplish that which all of those sacrifices over and over merely symbolized. The author of Hebrews is unfolding in this section of his letter that Jesus is that atoning sacrifice that actually, actually accomplished what all of those sacrifices symbolized. Jesus actually took away the filth of God's people. 
Jesus actually dealt with the guilt of God's people. So it's not Jesus over and over again, sacrificed anew, time after time, but Jesus once and for all. He died on the cross once for all. Jesus' sacrifice is unlike the animal sacrifices in that it's not over and over, but once for all. Here's an illustration which might help us understand the ways in which Jesus' sacrifice is both like and unlike those Old Testament sacrifices. It's like Jesus' death on the cross was like those Old Testament animal sacrifices, the way that a wedding is like the wedding rehearsal. But Jesus' death on the cross was unlike those Old Testament sacrifices in the way that a wedding is unlike a wedding rehearsal. See, a wedding rehearsal bears some semblance to what's going to happen. But it's not actually effective. You're not married once your wedding rehearsal's over. Everybody goes home and you've gone through a shadow, a foretaste of the ceremony, but nobody's married yet. Then the next day, the real thing happens. The Old Testament sacrifices were like a wedding rehearsal. They bear an obvious and marked resemblance to what was eventually going to happen. But they're not the wedding day. They don't actually accomplish anything. But when Jesus dies, it's like the wedding. You can see how it is very much like everything that has gone before. But you can also see that it's very much unlike everything that has gone before. And that it actually accomplishes that which was signified in all of those sacrifices that went before. So Jesus came to put away sin once for all. Jesus came to put away sin at the end of the ages. This might be hard for us to understand since about 2,000 years have gone by since Jesus at the end of the ages put away sin. But it means this. Jesus' death on the cross was the decisive final, culminating dealing of God with mankind. Think of a plot line of a book or a movie or a TV show, any story. There's a crisis or a tension introduced at some point of some sort. And then as the book continues to develop or the film continues to roll you see the heightening of that tension you see the ways that perhaps the characters try successfully or try unsuccessfully to resolve the tension or the conflict but then 
the tension or the conflict is resolved. And then from there on out is what's called in literary terms a denouement in a standard story where everything then is basically tied up and resolves the way you would expect it to. Like in the fairy tales. And everybody lived happily ever after. The denouement. When the prince kisses Sleeping Beauty and she awakes. Or when... Simba comes back and defeats Scar or whatever story we might draw upon that is that is the real culmination that resolution of the tension that resolution of the conflict is really the culmination of that whole story it's really the apex of that story it's the it's the end of the movie you would say don't give away the ending You don't mean, don't say, and they all lived happily ever after. You mean, don't tell me how the conflict is resolved. Jesus' death on the cross happened at the end of the ages in that sense. God created Adam and Eve. They were in the beginning without sin. Until one day they rebelled against God. And the human race was plunged into filth and guilt. The tension was introduced. Various ways throughout history, people have tried unsuccessfully to resolve that tension. What will the ending be? What will happen at the end of the ages? Jesus will die on a cross to put away the filth and the guilt of sin. That's what it means when it says that Jesus came to put away sin at the end of the ages. What will the apex of human history be? It's already happened. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to resolve the tension, the conflict in the plot line of human history. Jesus' death on the cross was the most significant thing that will ever happen or has happened yet. All of, in fact, even the good things that we're waiting for. The return of Christ. The restoration of all things. Life eternal in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why are all those things happening? Because of the cross. We mark our calendars. By B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and Anno Domini. The year of our Lord. And then because that's not very politically correct, some are campaigning for BCE and CE, which represents before common era and common era. Well, what distinguishes the common era from the time before the common era? Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus came to put away sin at the end of the story in resolution of the conflict that was introduced into the plot line of human history. Jesus came to put away sin at the end of the ages. Jesus came to put away sin, this verse tells us, by the sacrifice of Himself. Again, this 
is in contrast to animal sacrifices. There's some overlap here in this clause of the statement with that earlier clause where we talked about Jesus putting away sins once for all. And we talked about those animal sacrifices. There's some overlap conceptually between Jesus putting away sins by the sacrifice of himself. Because we have to go back and talk about those animal sacrifices again. Jesus entered into heaven with his own blood to effect a real transaction. If we look back just a couple of verses to Hebrews 9.24, it says this, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. So those, that tabernacle where the priests offered animal sacrifices, was it a holy place made with hands? Yes. Therefore, as that verse I just read tells us, it was a copy of the true thing. Those temples, the first temple, then the second temple after the destruction and the rebuilding, were they holy places made with hands? Yes. Therefore, they were, as the verse I just read tells us, copies of the true things. Everything that happened in those places which were copies of the true things. Everything that happened in those copies were themselves also copies. All of those animal sacrifices were themselves copies which happened in places that were copies of the true place and the true sacrifice which needed to occur. And Hebrews 9.24 and 25 tells us that Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, not, those, not that tabernacle, not those temples, but into heaven itself. Not into the copies of the true things, but into the true thing itself. Now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it, nor was Christ's entering into the true thing, that true place, to offer himself repeatedly, As the high priest in the tabernacle and the temples entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. But Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus entered the true place with the true sacrifice of which all the other things were just copies and shadows. Jesus did that to effect a real transaction. Again, it's the wedding day, not the rehearsal. It bears resemblance to that which has gone before, but something is actually happening when Jesus enters heaven with his own blood. So this is why Jesus came. He came to put away sins. He did it once for all. He did it at the end of the ages. And he did it by the sacrifice of himself. This is what Jesus' appearance was all about. Jesus came to put away sin. Both the filth of it and the guilt of it. Therefore, because that's 
why Jesus came. That's what Christmas is all about. The baby in a manger is only worth celebrating because he would one day be a man on a cross. You need your sins put away. And I need my sins put away. Everybody needs their sins put away. You're either trying to ignore that fact and suppress that fact, or you're trying unsuccessfully to put away sins some other way. Just as characters in a book or a television show or a movie try unsuccessfully to resolve the conflict another way. Or, you're looking to Jesus and trusting in Him to put away sins. If you're trusting in Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, take great comfort this Christmas day. Jesus appeared to put away sins. That's why He came. And He didn't leave without accomplishing His purpose. Jesus didn't ascend back into heaven before He did that which He came to do. At the cross, Jesus did put away sins. Once for all, at the end of the ages, by the sacrifice of Himself. Christian, take great comfort and rejoice in Jesus Christ your Savior, His coming into the world to put away your sins. But if you're not yet trusting in Christ, I would plead with you. Look to Him today. Trust in Him to save you from your sins. You need someone to deal with the filth and the guilt of your sin. And none can do it but Christ. The scripture says, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus can do it. But Jesus can do it. So it's not a slim hope. Despite the fact that there's only one way. It's a sure hope because Jesus has not failed. Jesus has been successful in that for which he came. Jesus has put away sins once for all at the end of the ages by the sacrifice of himself. So let us all, whether you came in here as a believer or as an unbeliever, let us all even now trust And look to this Savior. Let us all rest our souls on Him. And let us then rejoice. Having done that. In the salvation from sin that we have in Him.